It seems like every game coming out these days with even a hint of difficulty is categorised as Souls-like. The games don't even have to be much of a challenge. Throw in a dodge roll and a couple of boss fights that require more than button spamming, and you will have at least one game journalist call it the next Elden Ring or something. Then you play the game because you're after a new Souls experience, and you feel utterly bamboozled because it was not at all what you expected. But what did you expect? What even is a Souls-like? Let's talk about it. Welcome to The Gaming Companion, the podcast where I talk about the latest game releases, theories, and rant about all sorts of gaming topics. I'm Becky, and the other day I was watching an in-depth analysis on Armored Core 6 and whether it's soulsy enough for the majority of the FromSoft audience. Full disclosure, I have never played an Armored Core game, but I do know probably more than is healthy about Souls games. And I too have watched the gameplay reveals of AC6 and been very tempted to check it out. So I gave it a bit of thought on whether it's actually a Souls-like, and ran into the problem of being completely unable to actually define what a Souls-like is. And this was complicated even more by the Lies of P demo I did a couple of weeks back. That game feels like a Souls-like, and people agree that that's what it is, but why is it? And why would AC6 not be? Especially when it has a lot of gameplay elements that feel soulsy, particularly the combat in the very choreographed boss fights. Problem is, it turns out none of us can actually agree on what makes a souls-like a souls-like. Which is a bit of an issue. There's been an uptick in popularity lately for the souls-like genre, especially after the release of Elden Ring and a lot of upcoming games have been wrongly designated as Souls-likes because they can sort of fit into the difficult action-adventure niche. But let's be honest, Souls-like is an acquired taste. I enjoy them, but I can see why people don't. There are a lot of concerns about accessibility in Souls-likes, which, while might not be a big deal to you, is certainly a big deal to someone who needs those options in a game. Calling a newly released game that might have those options a Souls-like, a genre known for being uncompromising and inaccessible, isn't going to help anyone. And this issue is mostly caused by game journalists. Specifically, the type of journalist who will play a game, get stuck, either on a boss or one of the game's mechanics, and then immediately call the game too tricky or a Souls-like. Even more specifically, the type of journalist who will say Tears of the Kingdom is just like Elden Ring, despite it being really kind of not. But it's not really just them. Even looking through the user-defined Souls-like tag on Steam shows that some people tag games a little weirdly. And I have talked about this before, the way people can accidentally or not so accidentally trick others into buying a game by referring to it as something else. The problem is, if you get into any kind of conversation about why certain games aren't Souls-likes, you'll have to defend your opinion on why another game is. Say what you want about game journalists, but it's no surprise that they're capitalising on clickbait titles when we, as a Souls community, still have constant arguments on whether Sekiro counts or not. Even Wikipedia doesn't seem to want anything to do with this argument. Its wiki entry on the list of video game genres has a noticeable lack of any form of Souls-like, even though it does have Metroidvanias and roguelikes listed. 
And yes, wiki is not the be-all and end-all of if a genre is real or not, but it doesn't look like anyone else can define it either. HP, yes, the computer manufacturer HP, has an article on video game genres in which they mention roguelikes, and it does name-drop Sekiro, but no mention of Souls-likes. Another example, a game genre reference guide by Codekid from April 2022, a time when Souls-likes were pretty relevant straight after the release of Elden Ring. But the guide doesn't even mention anything to do with Souls, let alone the Souls-like genre. There is a standalone wiki entry on Souls-like video games, but it's very bare-bones, honestly. I did want to discuss something that the wiki entry does bring up, and that's whether the term Souls-likes is actually a true genre, or just a bunch of bundled-up mechanics. Personally, I don't really see the difference. What even is a genre if not a collection of similar mechanics across multiple games? All the roguelikes and metroidvania genres are is several specific mechanics that appear game after game, and this question whether it's a true genre isn't mentioned anywhere on their wiki pages. From my perspective, Dark Souls and the Soulsborne games as a whole are no less of an inspiration than metroidvanias or roguelikes, especially after the success of Elden Ring, so there's no reason for it not to be a true genre. And yes, that perspective will annoy some people, because splitting games into these subgenres can cause chaos, and people don't like that. But I do appreciate the neat little way you can just look up Souls-like and get recommendations for at least some similar games that you just wouldn't find otherwise. The genre system just needs a little bit of work, that's all. And the work has been not perfected exactly, but at least somewhat polished up for Metroidvanias and Rogues. Souls-like just doesn't have quite the same history behind it, it's a new genre. The other two evolved from four games that came out in the 1980s. The Souls games barely only kicked off in the 2010s, unless you're counting Kingsfield, which not a lot of people do. The genre is obviously not called a field-like, but I'm going to put that topic to the side for a moment. Metroidvanias and roguelikes obtained those separate genres that are worthy enough of being listed on Wiki's video game genre guide, after quite a lot of discussion and analysis of what the genre actually entails. Now this timeline is admittedly a little fuzzy for Metroidvanias. It seems that people just started using the term as more and more of this style of game came out. The term roguelikes, on the other hand, has more of a concrete history. The release of Rogue in 1980 inspired a lot of similar games, such as Hack, NetHack, and Moria, which actually was a big inspiration for the Diablo series. And while it might not be a direct inspiration, Rogue even laid the groundworks for the Mystery Dungeon games, one of my all-time favourite game series. It had enough of an impact that it even inspired its own conference dedicated for people with an interest in the development of roguelikes. In 2008, a bunch of fellas at this international roguelike development conference went ahead and put together the Berlin Interpretation, basically a list of factors a game needs to have to be considered a roguelike. Interestingly, this isn't a cut-and-dry list, it's based on an overall score that considers how many of the iconic rogue features the game has. These features are split into high and low-value priority. If a feature is considered essential to the roguelike, it's a high value. 
if it could be potentially left out with it still being a roguelike, it's a low value. This score-based system means that missing a feature doesn't exclude a game from being a roguelike, even if it's missing one of these high-value features. And neither does one of these features in a different game make it a roguelike. I'm not going to go into the exact features in the interpretation here, because I think that's a little beyond the scope of this episode. However, I do think it's a brilliant system for deciding what makes a game a part of a genre. It does have its drawbacks, with people calling it out of date, which is fair. The genre is constantly evolving, especially as technical advancements are made. And sometimes the old features just don't work anymore. And this does boil down to what features people personally want to see in a roguelike, which will be an issue no matter what features are mentioned. It's not necessarily an issue with the Berlin system itself, and it definitely shouldn't be treated as the gospel. Everyone has their own thing that's drawing them to a genre, and at the end of the day, if you see a game as a Souls-like that no one else does, you do you. Just don't be surprised if no one agrees with you. I would argue that the system is worth a look at for these other subgenres, such as the much more established Metroidvania and Souls-likes. The way I see it, the term Souls-likes is still in the early stages of existence. It's currently not as distinguishable from any other RPG game, or even from these other subgenres. But it's never really too early to adopt something like the Berlin Interpretation, a categorization method that relies on a point system instead of a black and white, it has this feature, it must be this genre, is just the logical way of going forward because even games that fit into the same subgenre are all different, and they don't and shouldn't have the exact same features as another game it's inspired from, even if that game is something like Dark Souls. Now, let me take your attention all the way back to King's Field. I mentioned this game briefly when I was discussing the origins of Souls-likes in 2010, Souls-like stemming from Demon Souls or Dark Souls. Dark Souls came out in 2011, Demon Souls in 2009. But Kingsfield does bring up an interesting point. Despite the term Souls-likes, neither of the Souls games were really the origins of the genre. A lot of the features found in Demon Souls were actually directly inspired by FromSoft's first title, Kingsfield, which was released in 1995. It's another series where you're pretty much left alone to work out for yourself what you're doing. In fact, it still achieves that same sense of what's going on that the Soulsborne games do. And this could just be graphical limitations of the time, but that doesn't mean it's not still there. Kingsfield also has a very slow movement speed, which is a good way of preventing the player from just spamming attacks, which is still a thing in the Soulsborne games. Sort of. The games have moved on from slow attacks, but the games still have the anti-spam attack feature with the stamina gauge. One particular feature that I personally find intriguing is the death mechanic. Similar to Souls games, you can only save the game in a certain place, and when you die you get sent back to a checkpoint. Unless you die before the checkpoint, or without a specific item, in which case you lose all of your progress. And this checkpoint system is something I'd consider pretty essential to Souls-likes. And it's not quite the same. The traditional bonfire system wasn't really added until Dark Souls, but it does tell an interesting tale of game development. 
arguably Kingsfield did lay down a bunch of the foundation for the Souls-like genre. However, a lot of people in this community see Souls-like games to be more down to the influence of Hidetaka Miyazaki, who joined in 2005 for Armored Core and jumped into development for Demon Souls in 2009. And while I would agree to a point that Demon Souls and later Dark Souls did start the Souls genre, there are too many similarities in Kingsfield for it to be completely cast aside. And this is a downside of naming genres after specific games. It completely ignores pretty much all the inspiration that came before the games. Setting Dark Souls up as the pinnacle of the subgenre sets an expectation for the other games that come after it. For example, the upcoming Souls-like Lies of P doesn't have the same hands-off experience that Soulsborns do. From a standalone perspective, it's a good game. From a Dark Souls perspective, with that game-specific reference of what a game in this genre should be, it does fall flat. And this is true of the other subgenres of Metroidvania and roguelikes as well, though admittedly to a lesser extent because they're based on games that the modern audience might not have actually played. Despite the work put into creating the Berlin interpretation, roguelikes still ended up splitting into two categories, the roguelikes that matched the assignment exactly, and the roguelites that merely took inspiration. All the roguelikes that don't have permadeath, such as Hades or Dead Cells, couldn't neatly fit into the roguelike category without people being mad that they're not exactly the same. So, Roguelite was created as a way to name a game like Roguelikes, but had a bit more of a progression and story to them. And I do see Soulslikes going the same way. Especially since we already have a similar distinction between Soulslikes and Soulsborns. No doubt with all the Soulslikes coming out that don't quite meet the mark, there's a big possibility that Soulslikes will also be a common saying in the industry. Which I do find stupid, but stepping down from my soapbox for a minute and coming back to my original point of not being able to define what a Souls-like is, I think there's one obvious solution. I am going to set up my own amateur Berlin interpretation, but for Souls-likes. Just like those guys at the International Roguelike Committee did in 2008. Only difference is, I'm not a fella, this isn't a conference, and there's only one of me. But besides that, it's pretty much the same thing. Just like the Berlin interpretation, I'm going to list a bunch of features, both high value and low value, using the Soulsborns as a reference. Not necessarily just Dark Souls. I think it's better to take from a wider range, so I'm going to be considering the entire Dark Souls series, Bloodborne, Sekiro, Elden Ring, and yes, even Kingsfield. First off, the high-value features. Let's say 5 points for each of these features a game has. So, in no particular order. Feature 1. Difficulty. Difficulty is, without a doubt, the first thing most people think of when Souls-likes come up. Back when I was just a little newbie to the genre and I had yet to start up Bloodborne for the first time, Dark Souls was built up as this impossible game series. Get Good didn't exactly come from nowhere. The Soulsborns all have a try, try, and try again approach that encourages you to learn from your mistakes, and I personally find this one of the most important aspects of a Souls-like, so it counts as a high-value feature for me. 
However, I will say it does have a flaw, especially since what's considered difficult is wildly subjective. I struggled with the Thunderblight Ganon in Breath of the Wild. Does the fact I had issues with him automatically make him a Souls-like boss? No. And just like there are difficult bosses in other non-Souls-likes, there are easy bosses in Soulsborns, like the Witch of Henwick in Bloodborne, which is an annoying entity to deal with for sure, but not something I'd consider as difficult as the other bosses are. This discussion on which bosses are really hard and which ones just aren't is a common one, and we disagree a lot. One player might really struggle with one boss, another might breeze through it. However, there are some game mechanics that do play into this difficulty, and these mechanics, I think, are what we do need to consider when we're establishing whether something is deliberately difficult. And these mechanics are memorization, in which you have to remember what a boss does and respond accordingly, a stamina gauge that prevents mindless button smashing, some form of health system that isn't necessarily the same as constant rehealing, there is a limit to how many times you can do it, and of course enemy respawns. It's also important to remember when looking at a difficulty of a game is how frequently it's difficult. If it's just during the beginning of a game, or only for a few bosses like Breath of the Wild, it's not really a difficult game like a Souls-like game is, which are consistently difficult throughout. So, high value feature number one is consistently difficult gameplay. Feature number two, exploration. Soulsborne games are all very heavily focused on exploration. If you run through the maps without looking around for items, hidden bosses or shortcuts, you're missing out on a lot of the game, and possibly even some endings. But it's not technically the existence of these hidden parts that are Souls-like, but more the freedom in being able to choose whether to hunt them out or not. You can absolutely play through the majority of a Soulsborne game and only scrape the surface of the story. In comparison, most games force you to play at least the story quests, since they want you to know the story. And I'd say this is a big reason why Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom just aren't Souls-likes. While you can skip straight to the final boss, story be damned, there is still some prologue that you have to get through first. There's no avoiding the initial scenes of introduction, where you meet characters and get given the main quest of go beat up Ganon. And the whole skipping to the final boss thing is more a Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom thing anyway, it would be slightly strange for just the most recent games in a series to suddenly become Souls-like. So the second high-value feature of Souls-likes is freedom to explore. The third feature is shortcuts. Adding on to just the general being able to explore or not aspect, another part of Souls-likes lies in how you explore, something that is greatly helped by bonfires. Technically they're not always bonfires, you can have lanterns or graces, but I'm going to call them bonfires because it's easier, and because calling them checkpoints is very boring. The ability to save your progress as you make your way across the world is fairly standard in most games, but the way Souls-like do it is different. For one, checkpoints are usually linear, in that you get one, then move on to the next, and you don't really go back to the previous ones. In Souls-likes, you're skipping around between bonfires a lot so it loses a lot of that linear feel. For example, Bloodborne, especially when you reach Vicar Amelia, goes pretty insane game direction-wise, and you get given a lot of paths to take. Now, I will say that this bonfire system is very similar to what's in Metroidvanias, which have a non-linear backtrack progression, and roguelikes that send you back to the beginning if you die. 
In this case, it would be being sent back to the bonfire. But there's no real reason to care too much about whether these other games have bonfire-like elements or not, since the existence of the feature in those genres doesn't necessarily mean Souls-likes can't also have the feature. Especially not with something like this burden interpretation system that works on a sliding scale of Souls-likeness anyway. So, the third high-value feature of a Souls-like is shortcuts. The fourth is a levelling up system. It just wouldn't really be an RPG without a levelling system. And this is one of the features that take these games away from being roguelike. In a standard roguelike, not so much a roguelite, you don't really retain any experience points. When you die, you go back to level 1. Not so much in a Souls-like, as you can keep the weapons and skills you've unlocked, and you only really lose the points that you haven't invested. A lot of games do have a similar levelling system, so that's not really anything too spectacular. However, the way you can only level up in a lobby area is pretty essential to a Souls-like. Most RPGs do let you mess with the levels anywhere you are in the world. Now, Sekiro does deviate a little from this stat system by offering a skill tree instead, and this is one of the reasons people give when they say that Sekiro is not a Souls-like. But I'd say the skill tree in that game it's still the same design as the stat system in the other games, just in a different configuration that lets you target specific skills instead of raw stats. And if Souls-like equals difficult, I'd say Sekiro's skill tree fits the genre to a T, since it's still so restrictive to when you can level up. You can't just kill a bunch of random enemies like you can in the other Soulsborns. So, stat levelling and only being able to level in specific areas is high value feature number 4. The fifth and the last high-value feature of Souls-likes is combat. Souls-like games do share a similar combat style between them. Admittedly, it does also share similar combat mechanics to other games, especially in the more modern games that have taken inspiration by the genre, but not really committed to the Souls-like angle. I'm going to be using Zelda as a reference. Souls-like combat features lock-ons and dodges, like Zelda does. It also has parry mechanics, based on timing, which Zelda also has. Both Soulsborns and Zelda have a wait-and-see aspect. Boss fights are easier if you take a minute to watch what your opponent's doing instead of running in blind. However, that's where the similarities end. Soulslikes have a lot more of a focus on iframes. While dodges are still a big part of Zelda, the concept of running towards an enemy and ignoring the attack by dodging through an arm or something is a very Souls-like thing to do. Other games do iframes, but not to the same extent. Usually they're triggered by using an item, starting a spell, or any other kind of animation. Souls-likes, on the other hand, with the exception of dodges, let you be kicked out of your animation entirely, which is why timing and knowing how long your moves takes is such a big part of combat. There's a lot more that goes into it, such as finding the right length of attack for your playstyle. Zelda has a little bit of this. You can still choose weapons, and the bigger weapons will obviously take longer to use, so you need to get used to the timing and how to use them. However, it doesn't matter as much, because boss fights are very much divided into figure out the mechanic in which you're not necessarily damaging a boss, and then attack. Then the boss refreshes, and you do the whole thing, a specific amount of times again. Usually you have to do this three times and the boss is defeated. 
in a proper Souls like, the way you beat a boss is entirely up to you. While there is still that do this a certain number of times to stagger, hit the boss, reset, you can absolutely do it a different way as well. And this ties into the most important aspect of this feature, and that's deciding for yourself how to beat bosses. And this is what sets Souls-likes apart from other games, the diversity in the combat. I remember when Sekiro first came out and people were struggling with bosses. And the most common advice was to listen to the NPCs talk about the boss's weaknesses. You don't have to do that though, because there are multiple ways you can choose to face each boss. This gives you the ability to play the game completely different from someone else. So the fifth high value feature of Souls-likes is combat freedom. That's all of the high value features, now onto the low value. Let's say these are three points apiece. And just for clarification's sake, these aren't features that I believe aren't important to Souls-likes. Just ones that a new game in the Souls-likes genre could skip out. Low value feature number one, multiplayer. Isn't really an essential part of the game. You can play any of the Soulsborns without other people. But being raided by other players is a pretty big part of the Soulsborne experience, and this goes for the multiplayer messages that you can find and leave everywhere as well. So, low value feature number one, multiplayer. Low value feature number two is the last chance mechanic. This one I struggled with not putting in the high value, but I do have a reason for it. Souls-like games have a pretty big reputation for being unforgiving, but that's not really true. They all have a last chance mechanic that is pretty generous, and lets you run back to pick up your stuff no matter how you died. Honestly, this is nicer than Minecraft. At least if you die from standing in a burning liquid in a Souls game, you do have a chance to get your stuff back. Sekiro's is even more generous since you even have a second chance at dying. But the reason it's a low value feature and not one of the most essential ones is because you can just ignore your dropped souls completely and the game is still playable in pretty much the same way. So low value feature number two, last chance. The third low value feature is character customization. It's fairly standard in the Soulsborne games that you can put a little too much effort into the customization, but this is mostly cosmetic. It's not a feature that if it wasn't there I'd particularly care about. Sekiro certainly doesn't have it, and that's as Souls-like as you get. So, low value feature number three, character customization. Low value feature number four, world building. Now this one is a tricky one, because it's one I believe should be a main feature, but really shouldn't be at the same time. One thing that Souls-likes, both FromSoft and not, do have in common is the overall aesthetic. Bosses in all of the games are intricately messed up. The worst one I can think of is Ludwig, but honestly all of them are pretty nightmare fuelish. But this mysterious eldritch design isn't of course unique to Souls-likes, and it's not actually a defining feature of Souls-likes. In an interview with Hidetaka Miyazaki himself, he said that a sense of darkness isn't Souls-like. It's more just from software's art style, bright and chipper settings being something the devs don't really like doing. I think if there's anyone's opinion for who we should trust on what makes a Souls-like, 
It's Miyazaki himself. Of course, this doesn't mean that atmosphere is not an important part of the game. Just because it's not a conscious design choice to make the game part of a genre doesn't mean it's not part of the design. And From Software's main expertise is in Souls-like games. So it doesn't matter that much that the dark atmospheric gameplay is more a dev choice than a genre choice because they only really focus on the one genre. I'm going to partly ignore the devs and say that the dark world building is an important feature of Souls-likes, but I'm going to rank it as low value. The only reason this isn't high valued is because Miyazaki said no. That was the last of the low value features, so putting this all together, we have five high value features all at five points apiece, 25 points. And we have four low value, all three points apiece, it's 12 points. 25 plus 12, 37 points altogether. And let's say that a game has to get 70%, which is a grade of C if you're in the US, to be considered a Souls-like, which is 25.9. Let's round that up to 26. Now obviously this is based on the features from Dark Souls and Bloodborne, so they get full points. They weren't really in contention though. Let's finally talk about Sekiro. A lot of people do not consider Sekiro to be a Souls-like. The Sekiro story has a lot less emphasis on player choice than the other Soulsborne games. In the other ones, you're pretty much a blank slate to customise as you want. You can choose to put in as much or as little backstory into your character. It won't affect the game at all, the choice is yours. Sekiro has a very defined character that has a backstory tied in with the lore. There's no getting around that. There's also no choice in how the character plays. You have a katana and you have the prosthetics, but that's really it. It's quite different from the multitude of playstyles available in other FromSoft games. On the flip side of this, the ability to choose how you want to beat a boss is still somewhat there, like I mentioned before about needing to listen to the NPCs. And regardless of how you beat the bosses, Sekiro still has that very Souls-like aspect of having to analyse exactly what movements the boss makes, and to time your counter-attacks accordingly. There is, of course, that major difference in how the levelling up system works in Sekiro, being more of a skill tree than the stat levels. However, like I said before, this does just add on to the Souls-like difficulty. From Software themselves have also said, Sekiro isn't a continuation of the other Souls games. To me, this reads very differently from saying it's not a Souls-like. However, this argument does get a little too tied up in semantics when you start digging deeper. And this does tie back to the issues with the Souls-like genre name in general. This discussion would not really be a thing if we called the collective Dark Souls and Bloodborne experience anything other than just a portmanteau of their names, and set up expectations of every Souls game to take after Dark Souls exactly. Then we probably wouldn't get people trying to add both Elden Ring and Sekiro into the Soulsborne name, with results such as Soulsborne Sekiring or whatever it is. But if we accept non-FromSoftware developers creating Souls-likes that aren't Soulsborne, I think we can accept FromSoft making a Souls-like game that isn't necessarily a Soulsborn, like Sekiro. But let's run it through my recently created Souls-like interpretation, just to be sure. First feature, difficulty. The game definitely scales with you, and the memorization, stamina, health system, and enemy respawns are all there, five points. 
Exploration, yes. It's just as exploration-focused as the other Souls-likes. Five points. Shortcuts, yes. Five points. Leveling up, I want to say yes. Just because I believe that it doesn't have to be a traditional Dark Souls level-up system. And, as I said, if the main point of the leveling system in a Souls-like is that you can't level up wherever you want, well, Sekiro has that. Five points. Combat freedom and choosing how you want to beat the boss, yes. Five points. Multiplayer... No. Last chance? Not in the same way. Like I mentioned before, Sekiro does have that second chance before you die mechanic, but it's more before you die instead of picking up your stuff after you die. Personally, I don't really see there's much difference. Three points. Character customization? No. World building? It's a FromSoft game, of course. Three points. 31 points altogether out of 36. That puts Sekiro pretty firmly into the Souls-like category for me. Let's take a look at another game, Armored Core 6. I would love to be able to run this through my Souls-like interpretation, but unfortunately I can't because I haven't actually played it. I can guess from the trailers, but I can see that being a little inaccurate. But let me just tell you what my thoughts on the subject are. Like Sekiro, the devs say it's not necessarily a Soulsborn or a Souls-like. Now you may be thinking, well, Becky, you literally just ignored the devs saying Sekiro wasn't a Souls-like, so why not do the same for Armored Core 6? Now I will say to this that Armored Core 6 has a lot more differences, at least from the trailers. It does have the lock-on targeting of the combat, but just like Zelda proves, this isn't a true feature of Souls-likes anyway. There's more of a mission system to Armored Core that I can tell, and the story is very bluntly in your face. There is a lot of narration in the trailers we've seen. Granted, they still have that quirky, cryptic way of speaking, but there's a lot more talking than it is in other Souls-like games. Perhaps in the future, when the game is out, a bunch of people will listen to this old episode and let me know exactly how wrong I am, and I'm looking forward to it. I am just waiting for Armored Soulsborn Seki Ring to be a thing. Now going back to the major problem with the Berlin interpretation, now that I have set up my own Souls-like interpretation, and that's the definition of Souls-like is down to the player. There's not really a right or wrong answer if you can justify why you think a feature does or doesn't count. Well, people are going to have a hard time arguing with you. But how does Tears of the Kingdom score? Difficulty? It does require you to memorise some boss moves. And there is a stamina gauge, but it's not really part of the combat like it would be in a Souls-like. I wouldn't say eating food counts as an Estus Flask type deal, and enemies don't typically respawn. No points. Exploration? There is a lot of exploration in Zelda, but it's not quite the same as a Souls-like, where you will be running around completely blind. And as I mentioned before, there is a bare minimum of story in Zelda that you have to see. Whereas a Souls-like will let you completely ignore the story if you want to. So, no points for exploration. Bonfires, kind of, but there's no real risk of running to a place instead of taking the shortcut, so no points. Leveling up? Nope. Combat freedom. I've covered this one too. There's not really a choice in how you beat bosses. No points. Multiplayer? Nope. Last chance mechanic? Nope. Character customization? <laughs> no. World building? I'll be fair, some of these critters are nasty, and it does have blood moons. Three points. 
which is three points overall for Tears of the Kingdom. It's not a Souls-like. So my Souls-like interpretation does work. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I can categorise some of my own favourite games with it. And I think that's where something like this shines best. If it works for you, it works. But let me know your own thoughts on this and what your own Souls-like interpretation looks like. Run your own favourite games through my list and tell me how it scores. If you're listening to this on YouTube, drop a comment. If you're listening to this elsewhere, you can tag me on Twitter, at RowanIsGaming, or you can send me an email at thegamingcompanionpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing what you have to say.